1: Today, I have the pleasure, I have the pleasure of announcing key nominations and appointments for the critical economic positions in the administration. A first-rate team that's going to get us through this ongoing economic crisis and help us build the economy back, not just build it back, but build it back better than it was before. A team that's tested and experienced. It includes groundbreaking Americans who come from different backgrounds, but who share my core vision ...for economic relief here in the United States of America.
2: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And the sound that you heard was the sound of guards changing. Joe Biden will be US President in less than seven weeks' time, and though the transition was in suspended animation for a few weeks, it is now fully up and running. We're starting to get a much clearer sense of who's going to be sitting in the key post. What do these first appointments tell us about the new administration's economic priorities, and how on earth is he expecting to get around the fact that the Senate's likely to stay in the hands of Republicans so far loyal to President Trump? I can't think of a better person to ask about all of this than Jason Furman. He's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School now, but he was head of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers, and he's good mate with most of the new economic team. He's also just published a paper with Larry Summers calling for a revolution in fiscal policy, just as the incoming president considers his first budget. Nice. We're also going to check in, briefly, on the new era coming for Britain on January 1st, as it fully leaves the European Union. Less than five weeks out, we still don't know what our brave new world's going to look like, but we can already say it's not going to be great news for the city of London. I'll be asking Bloomberg finance reporter Viren Vegella how much financial business has already left the UK in all the uncertainties over Brexit, and what's at stake if the trickle of jobs and money out of London becomes a flood. But first... We are lucky to have this introduction to the incoming president's economic agenda from the star economic reporter and columnist for Bloomberg Businessweek, Peter Coy.
3: In Washington, personnel is policy. The people President-elect Joe Biden has picked to run economic policy are for the most part centrist veterans of Washington, his pick for the most important job, Secretary of the Treasury, is Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair, who's an advocate of extraordinary fiscal support to counter the pandemic. Listeners to Stephanomics may recall her pointed comments on that at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum last month.
0: The notion that the Fed can do all that is required at this point to support the economy um, is just wrong. And the Fed is really pleading for fiscal relief. I believe it's essential.
3: For director of the National Economic Council, Biden is going with an Obama administration veteran, Brian Deese. According to people familiar with the matter, Deese is an executive at BlackRock, the multi-trillion dollar fund manager. Ex-Obama official Cecilia Rouse of Princeton is set to be the first African-American to lead the Council of Economic Advisors. At the Office of Management and Budget, Biden wants Neera Tandon, who worked for both Clinton and Obama, although Republicans are threatening to block her over partisan comments on Twitter. Joe Biden ran for president as a healer and a bridge builder, and Bidenomics reflects that. Biden hasn't fully embraced progressive causes such as the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, which could set him up for a battle with liberals like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says the Democrats would have done better in the election if they had tilted further left.
1: That it only has ever been radicals that have changed this country. Abraham Lincoln made the radical decision to sign the, the Emancipation Proclamation. Franklin Delano Roosevelt made the radical decision to embark on establishing programs like Social Security. That is radical.
3: But Biden does plan to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord and says he'll slash carbon emissions through jobs heavy investment. He must beef up Obamacare raise taxes on people earning over $400,000 a year, and raise the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21. Unless Dems win two Senate seats in Georgia next month, he will struggle to pass as a domestic agenda. he will have more leeway internationally acting to cool off the trade wars and create a united front of nations to take on unfair Chinese trade practices. There's nothing dramatic in Bidenomics. But right now, drama is the last thing most people want.
1: Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Well, I'm really delighted. We can talk about Bidenomics now with Jason Furman. Um, Jason, a bit of scene setting first. How does the economy that uh, president Let Biden's inheriting now compare with what faced President Obama in 2008? You had a a massive recession then and unemployment was a similar rate but it has a very different feel at times now.
4: Yeah, well Stephanie, thanks so much for having me on. When President o- Biden takes the oath of office in January, the unemployment rate will be similar to what it was when President Obama took the oath of office in January 2009. There'll be a huge difference though, which is that in 2009 the unemployment rate was rising and the worst days of the economy were ahead of us, this time the unemployment rate is very, very likely to be falling over the course of 2021, maybe not completely healing the economy, but certainly the better days will be ahead.
2: It seems obvious, but what are the the big economic priorities that he faces?
4: The biggest economic priority is getting the virus under control, much of which involves the distribution of vaccines, but we can't wait for the vaccines to be distributed. So testing, encouraging social distancing, which is implemented at the state level um, in the United States. Um, But second, that getting the virus under control won't be enough. You know, if you get the virus under control, a restaurant can open. You still need people to be able to afford to eat in the restaurant. And so supporting demand, supporting job creation through fiscal measures is critical. And then finally, even if people can afford to eat in restaurants, and I'm obviously using this as a metaphor, um, there's still a lot of reallocation of labor, people that lost their jobs, people that need jobs for new employers, new industries. um, And that reallocation process can sometimes take years to play out.
2: We heard a little bit earlier from Peter Coy about some of the individuals who've come in. Obviously, some of them, uh, many of them, very well known to you and, and indeed to, to Stephanomics, the likes of, of Janet Yellen. But overall, you probably know many of them better than we do. What have, what should we take from this? From these people coming in?
4: Yeah. So I'm I'm friends and have worked with all seven of the people that have come out as key members of President Biden's economic team. I'm really thrilled um, about all of them. They're, you know, diverse in terms of, you know, gender, ethnicity, race, and the like. Um, They're all very focused, especially, though, on labor issues. Um, Janet Yellen is a macro and monetary economist, but a lot of her focus, and she's going to be the Treasury Secretary, um, is on labor markets and how they function The Council of Economic Advisors, which is what I used to run, all three of the economists there are focused on labor, the first time that we've ever seen that. Um, You'll have Brian Deese as the director of the National Economic Council. He'll coordinate the economic policymaking. In his case, his biggest focus is climate change. And you're going to see, I think, climate change not just as an environmental issue, but very much integrated into the thinking on economic policy as well.
2: I guess that the um the, a critic would would say that this is a lot of retreads from the Obama and Clinton administrations. And
4: oh, I would have phrased it as people with a lot of experience. Um,
2: <laughs> but that, even that, you know we have heard we've heard the likes of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez say you know there's a need for more radicalism. In fact that you know the Democrats should have been more radical in their approach to the election and they might have done better. If times have really changed, is it right to have a team of people who were in past administrations?
4: Absolutely. You want people who are experienced. You want people who can get things done. The Biden administration is never going to say, oh, we don't want to do blank on climate change. It's going to be Congress that stops them. They're not going to say we don't want to go, you know, too far on labor markets and wages, Congress is gonna be um, the break there. So I don't think any of these advisors will be a constraint on the ambition of the Biden um, agenda. And you want experienced people to understand what you can get done without Congress. You want credible people like Janet Yellen that can help persuade Congress um, to take the steps that need to be taken.
2: I want to talk a bit about Congress, because that's obviously a potential roadblock for all of this. But I want to get onto your paper with Larry Summers, because it it goes directly to not just the Biden agenda, but that of every other industrial economy right now. Um, There's been a lot of debate that we've talked about, actually, on Cephanomics quite a lot, about the changing balance between monetary and fiscal policy since the global financial crisis. And I guess the justification for that is you have interest rates at record lows we've seen central banks go as low as they can go repeatedly um and people had said already fiscal policy is going to have to play more of a role and um, then this year you saw that happen with a vengeance you've had this enormous amount of spending and borrowing by industrial countries maybe around up to 20 percent of gdp borrowing extraordinary numbers um the reaction of many people to that, including the UK Chancellor very recently in his spending review, has been that we're kind of lucky to get away with this borrowing. Um, we shouldn't expect to repeat it. And we should actually be looking to cut borrowing as soon as we can, once we, have, once we have a vaccine, once we have a recovery after this crisis. You say, in a sense, the opposite. You're saying it just calls for a revolution in the way we think about borrowing. So just take us through that a little bit, your argument with Larry Summers.
4: Yeah. So I think we don't want to focus on the debt. That's the wrong measure to look at. You want to look essentially at debt service, what you're paying each year on the debt, and compare that to where your economy is. Interest rates are incredibly low right now. They're a lot lower than the growth rate, something that Olivier Blanchard, who was president of the American Economics Association, his presidential address noted necessitated a profound rethinking of fiscal policy. Now, you might think interest rates are low just temporarily, but they were incredibly low in December before COVID struck our economies. And if you look at financial market forecasts in the United States, for example, the Fed thinks it's going to raise rates eventually to 2.5 percentage points. That itself would be quite low. The market doesn't believe them. They think the Fed's only going to get rates up to something like 1.4 percentage points. And so you do see policymakers around the world sometimes talking about, you know, this won't last. Their forecasts have been wrong for the last couple decades on interest rates. Markets are sending a very clear signal. And there's, um, you know, I think some very fundamental economic reasons why global saving has increased. The demand for investment has declined. And so equilibrium interest rates are lower. We need to think about fiscal policy very, very differently in that world.
2: How would it affect the way we decide whether a government's public finances are in decent shape? So these days, you know, when we economists at Bloomberg or others, we look at the debt ratio, uh, debt relative to GDP. You're suggesting we should just look, we should look at the cost of that debt. Presumably, we should also look at where spending or where borrowing is going to because you want it to actually be supporting economic growth. So how do we judge whether we're spending money on the right things in this environment?
4: Right. So if an economy has excess unemployment and an interest rate around zero, you can spend money on anything and it would be good for the economy. So if you just do the famous Keynes digging holes, filling in the holes, that will help. It's way better to instead of digging a hole and refilling it to... You know, build a highway to do something for telecommunications, um, for clean energy, um, or the like. Then as we look over the medium term, um, what Larry Summers and I recommend is that you look at real debt service as a share of GDP. Um, it's real debt service, you're adjusting for inflation because inflation is eating away part of your debt, you want to count that against interest. Um, In the United States and most other um, of the major economies right now, real debt service is currently around zero because inflation is offsetting interest. And it's projected to rise, but to rise very modestly and even a decade from now still be quite low by historical standards. So that would be the measure I would look at to decide if we were worried. And then finally, in terms of spending, it's gonna vary from country to country, but at low interest rates, there are a lot more public investments that actually repay themselves. Um, They cost money up front, you get higher wages, a stronger economy later on, and so it doesn't actually cost you anything, and you don't wanna think of it as costing you anything. Um, In the United States, investments in children meet that criteria, education, some infrastructure, research and development. I don't think you want to think about paying for something when the bigger danger we have is that we won't do enough of it.
2: You know, some people listening to this will say, hang on, I've heard arguments about this before, and they used to get trashed by some economists, because it sounds a bit like... A sort of liberal or progressive version of voodoo economics. You know, we used to be told by some on uh, the Republican side that you could gain tax revenues by cutting tax rates. Um, in effect, it sounds like you're saying we can save money by spending more of it. Is that really the world we're in with interest rates at this low?
4: Yes, it is. And <laughs> the difference is that you know the what I'm talking about comes out of over 100 peer-reviewed economic research papers, many of them written in the last decade. They were summarized in an important and synthesized an important paper by two of my colleagues at Harvard, Nathan Hendren and Bren Sprunkheiser, went through a rigorous peer review process and ended up in one of the top economic journals, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and um, they found this. Part of this is because of a revolution in economic research where you can use large-scale administrative data to follow large numbers of people over long periods of time. And so we can now look at people that received preschool education, that received nutritional assistance, that received healthcare as a child, look at them 30 years later and we see they're more likely to be working, to have higher wages, to be healthier, not to be in prison, um, and the like, and that evidence is is just increasingly powerful.
2: Just because I know some people listening to this podcast will have a bit of whiplash from hearing your argument, because we only last week had Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan talking about why inflation was going to go up, and rates, interest rates, were potentially going to go up, not immediately, but over sort of five year, ten year time frame, because of the reversal of uh, demographic. Uh, changes that we saw or at least a continuation so we now have if we have a rising dependency ratio everywhere uh, their argument was that you would start to have inflationary pressure and wages go up and that this could change all of those expectations and forecasts uh, that you just talked about in the financial markets and that rates would end up being much higher and inflation would end up being much higher what do you what do you say to that you know we could just we could completely change our way of looking at fiscal policy just in time for for the world to go back to more like it was, say, in the
4: 1970s? Yeah, so my view on fiscal policy is that there is not a timeless truth here. You can't look into some theory like modern monetary theory and say deficits are never a problem, nor should you have some theory that deficits and debt are always a problem. Um, You need to base it on empirical evidence about the economy, about interest rates, about um, the overall macroeconomic situation. You, know, you can have all sorts of theories about interest rates rising. That's not what financial markets think. That's not been the trend um, for several decades. That certainly might happen. And so, you know, Larry and I suggest you should be worried if real debt service rises above 2% of GDP. But I wouldn't jump right up to 2% of GDP and say we're fine. In fact, if you look at the program we recommend, um, it would still keep interest payments about 1% of GDP, about half of the margin that I think we should be at. So, yes, leave some room for error, be somewhat prudent. But right now, the bigger risk is that we don't do enough, not that we do too much deficit reduction.
2: Okay, so back to the real world. None of this is going to happen, surely, if the Republicans remain in control of the Senate for the first years of the Biden administration. Do you you think anyone on that side has has read your paper? Are you expecting them to to come on board?
4: You know, I certainly hope that this is a set of ideas that um, Democrats and Republicans in Congress take seriously. Going to make an effort to try to get them out there and discuss them with people. Um, at a more practical level, I was in the room many times as Vice President Biden was negotiating with Senator McConnell, who is currently the majority Republican majority leader of the Senate. Um, the two of them have a good rapport with each other, pretty transactional negotiating style. That may not be enough to get anything done, but I do think it's the best shot um, at getting something done in divided government. And there's certainly some areas like infrastructure which do generate interest from both political parties.
2: Well, that's a voice of optimism that is also a voice of experience, a rare treat. Uh, Jason Furman, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: I might have hoped to be telling you finally this week about a deal between the UK and the European Union to cover the period when transitional arrangements stop and the UK in January is fully, entirely, actually out of the European Union. But as this podcast was being put to bed on the 3rd of December, there was still no deal to be seen. So much so predictable, you might say. We've learned that unpicking a nearly 50-year-old marriage between two very complicated modern economies was always going to be tough. But if you step back, what's odd, when you think about it, is not that the negotiations have been going down to the wire, but what exactly is causing the trouble. The three big sticking points, as the EU negotiator Michel Barnier confirmed this week, are still the Leving playing field for business, access to British fishing waters, and how the overall agreement is going to be enforced. What has not been front and centre in any of these negotiations, it seems, has been relations between the City of London, the financial services industry that's so important to the UK economy, and the European Union itself. Critics say the city, in fact, got thrown to the lions a long time ago in these Brexit negotiations. And meanwhile, a lot of money and jobs have been exiting London as a result. Viren Vagela, Bloomberg finance reporter, has been totting up the impact so far and wrote a piece about it this week. I mean, Viren, how much business has gone from the city now as a direct result of Brexit? Is it, is it a lot more than we might initially have expected?
5: So EY in the report last month said that seven of 7,500 rolls and £1.2 trillion pounds in assets have already moved. And it says that this is just the beginning. Obviously, the transition period ends in a matter of four, about four weeks. And then we could see the, the, the toll really, really rise. Um, we know a few other things, such, such as equity trading, they're about 30% of that business in European stocks is done in London through London-based trading venues. And that's also at risk of uh, moving on Jan 4.
2: Is it more than we might have thought when the referendum happened? I was sitting in in JP Morgan and, and a little bit closer to this. And at the time, there was a feeling that actually banks were going to still find London very attractive...
5: Overall, the impact so far has been far less than some anticipated around that time, post-2016, the ref- referendum. Um, the CEO of London Stock Exchange at the time, Xavier Rollet, said that you know hundreds of thousands of jobs would leave the city. And clearly that hasn't come to pass just yet. It's um, a much smaller magnitude so far. And part of the theory at that time was that the clearing business, uh, in, in derivatives clearing, a uh, multi-trillion dollar market would potentially move to Europe. Now, that hasn't happened.
2: But what's at stake? I mean, if the city did gradually um, lose its status as one of the world's great financial hubs, what's at stake in terms of the economy?
5: The problem with these Brexit negotiations is a lot of focus has been on the trade talks and industries like fishing, but in the UK, um, finance makes up about 7% of the economy and more than a tenth of all tax revenue employs uh, more than a million people. Um, So the City of London is really critical to, um, to, to the UK economy. So there is a lot at stake and it's surprising, surprise a lot of senior executives in the city of London that there hasn't been more focus from the UK government on finance and forging a way to make sure that a critical industry is, is safeguarded.
2: I mean it's obviously it's one of the things that we've talked about again and again around brexit which is that you know you have a, a an advanced uh, modern economy it's probably it's the first time in, in sort of that i can remember where a decision has been made that really put other things ahead of business interests and economic interests, that decision to leave the EU. There was no question, I think, in anyone's minds that there would be a negative impact. You could have a debate about whether it would be large or small, um, but there had always been a concern about the economic impact. And it's just interesting that the government has not tried to offset that or work against that in, in, in defending the city in these negotiations. They seem to be quite happy to have the city be an emblem of uh this putting of of sovereignty and and other issues of sort of national control ahead of you know what is our most important um business but just on that point you mentioned equivalence. we should probably just say briefly what that is and why it matters
5: you know absolutely so with the big banks in london for 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 decades jp morgan goldman sachs and other Wall Street lenders have established big, big operations in London to do trading business, markets businesses, and they were able to serve EU clients like a French fund manager or a Dutch pension firm for their hedging and trading business from London. So London really grew to be this um, fantastic financial centre, global financial centre. Now of course, after the UK um, leaves the EU, or leaves the transition period in a few weeks' time. It will lose all the passporting rights that those firms will enjoyed to service those european firms so the the, back, the the fallback is equivalence which is in essence the european commission uh, determining that the uk's rules on finance are as robust as its own now de facto the uk's rules on finance are as robust the uk uh, wrote many of the rules when it was in Europe, it influenced the, the, the way those rules evolved. But the problem is that equivalence is a political decision, a series of political decisions. It's a Byzantine patchwork um, whereby the European Commission um, determines in different areas, such as the investment services, clearing and about 40 other areas, that the UK's rules are as robust. It's a gift of the european commission and it's being used as a political tool in the negotiations to make sure that europe gets what it wants
2: just thinking about sort of the global uh implications of this for those who are not sitting in the uk if is there another big european city that's going to come through this as a as a competitor not just to london but to new york or is it is it is it New York that's likely to benefit because there's no single place that combines all of the things that London has now
5: It's an interesting question because I think nobody is saying in all this that London's days are numbered It has obviously a lot of um, advantages still like its um the English language, its legal system, and i say it's it's built up um the rules in in, in many areas of finance. Um, it attracts a big talent pool. So a European city like Paris or Frankfurt, which are vying with London for more business, isn't likely to overtake London anytime soon, or perhaps perhaps ever. Um, some of the trading venues in London have, have split their European presence now between Amsterdam and Paris. Um, some of the banks have um, big operations now in Frankfurt. So what we're seeing is a sort of fragmented future for finance in Europe. But many people still think that London will dominate. It's always reinvented itself. We, we talked about how the Big Bang um, in the 1980s, um, um, uh, from Mar- Margaret Thatcher's time, was a big impetus for the City of London and made it a huge share trading hub. London is always. Rid- that was
2: the deregulation where they got rid of a lot of rules that actually made a lot of US banks want to prefer London for some things because of the reduction of rules. Is that right? Exactly.
5: And, and this is maybe a good analogy with what we may, may see um, in, in a post Brexit era. It's always looking at increasing competition, making um, rules better for the end user. And that ultimately makes London very attractive, or has done.
2: Well, we will wait and see. Uh, you uh, you referenced that era of, of, of Thatcherite deregulation uh, in the opening to your piece, that uh, the golden age of the City of London began with a big bang. It's ending with a whimper. Or maybe not. We'll find out over the next few years. Viren uh, Vegella, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get a lot more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Peter Coy, Jason Furman and Viren Vegella. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Lee.